Book Four, Sections One through Two, of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Four, The Will of King Cole, Section One. The pit of death was giving up its secrets. The hoist was busy, and cage load after cage load came up with bodies dead, and bodies living, and bodies only to be classified after machines had pumped air into them for a while. Hal stood in the rain and watched the crowd, and thought that he had never witnessed a scene so compelling to pity and terror. The silence that would fall when anyone appeared who might have news to tell. The sudden shriek of anguish from some woman whose hopes were struck dead the moans of sympathy that ran through the crowd, alternating with cheers at some good tidings, shaking the souls of the multitude as a storm of wind shakes a reed-field. And the stories that ran through the camp, brought up from the underground world, stories of incredible sufferings, and of still more incredible heroisms, men who had been four days without food or water, yet had resisted being carried out of the mine, proposing to stay and help rescue others. Men who had lain together in the darkness and silence, keeping themselves alive by the water which seeped from the rocks overhead, taking turns lying face upwards where the drops fell, or wetting pieces of their clothing and sucking out the moisture. Members of the rescue parties would tell how they knocked upon the barriers, and heard the faint answering signals of the imprisoned men, how madly they toiled to cut through, and how, when at last a little hole appeared, they heard the cries of joy, and saw the eyes of men shining from the darkness, while they waited, gasping, for the hole to grow bigger, so that water and food might be passed in. In some places they were fighting the fire, Long lines of hose had been sent down, and men were moving forward foot by foot as the smoke and steam were sucked out ahead of them by the fan. Those who did this work were taking their lives in their hands, yet they went without hesitation. There was always hope of finding men in barricaded rooms beyond. Hal sought out Jeff Cotton at the entrance to the tipple room, which had been turned into a temporary hospital. It was the first time the two had met since the revelation in Percy's car, and the camp marshal's face took on a rather sheepish grin. "'Well, Mr. Warner, you win,' he remarked, and after a little arguing he agreed to permit a couple of women to go into the tipple room and make a list of the injured, and go out and give the news to the crowd." Hal went to the Minettis to ask Mary Burke to attend to this, but Rosa said that Mary had gone out after he and Miss Arthur had left, and no one knew where she was. So Hal went to Mrs. David, who consented to get a couple of friends and do the work without being called a committee. "'I won't have any damned committees,' the camp marshal had declared." So the night passed, and part of another day. 
A clerk from the office came to Hal with a sealed envelope, containing a telegram, addressed in care of Cartwright. I most urgently beg of you to come home at once. It will be distressing to Dad if he hears what has happened, and it will not be possible to keep the matter from him for long. As Hal read, he frowned. Evidently the Harrigans had got busy without delay. He went to the office and telephoned his answer. Am planning to leave in a day or two. Trust you will make an effort to spare Dad until you have heard my story. This message troubled Hal. It started in his mind long arguments with his brother, and explanations and apologies to his father. He loved the old man tenderly. What a shame if some emissary of the Harrigans were to get to him to upset him with misrepresentations. Also these ideas had a tendency to make Hal homesick. They brought more vividly to his thoughts the outside world, with its physical allurements, there being a limit to the amount of unwholesome meals and dirty beds and repulsive sights a man of refinement can force himself to endure. Hal found himself obsessed by a vision of a club dining-room, with odors of grilled steaks and hot rolls, and the colors of salads and fresh fruits and cream. The conviction grew suddenly strong in him that his work in North Valley was nearly done. Another night passed, and another day. The last of the bodies had been brought out and the corpses shipped down to Pedro for one of those big wholesale funerals which are a feature of mine life. The fire was out, and the rescue crews had given place to a swarm of carpenters and timbermen, repairing the damage and making the mine safe. The reporters had gone, Billy Keating having clasped Hal's hand and promised to meet him for luncheon at the club. An agent of the Red Cross was on hand, and was feeding the hungry out of Mrs. Curtis's subscription list. What more was there for Hal to do, except to bid good-bye to his friends, and assure them of his help in the future? First among these friends was Mary Burke, whom he had had no chance to talk to since the meeting with Jessie. He realized that Mary had been deliberately avoiding him, she was not in her home, and he went to inquire at the Rafferty's, and stopped for a good-bye chat with the old woman whose husband he had saved. Rafferty was going to pull through. His wife had been allowed in to see him, and tears rolled down her shrunken cheeks as she told about it. He had been four days and nights blocked up in a little tunnel, with no food or water, save for a few drops of coffee which he had shared with other men. He could still not speak, he could hardly move a hand, but there was life in his eyes, and his look had been a greeting from the soul she had loved and served these thirty years and more. Mrs. Rafferty sang praises to the Rafferty God, who had brought him safely through these perils. It seemed obvious that he must be more efficient than the Protestant god of Johansson, the giant Swede, who had lain by Rafferty's side and given up the ghost. 
but the doctor had stated that the old Irishman would never be good to work again, and Hal saw a shadow of terror cross the sunshine of Mrs. Rafferty's rejoicing. How could a doctor say a thing like that? Rafferty was old, to be sure, but he was tough, and could any doctor imagine how hard a man would try who had a family looking to him? Sure, he was not the one to give up for a bit of pain now and then. Besides him, there was only Tim who was earning, and though Tim was a good lad and worked steady, any doctor ought to know that a big family could not be kept going on the wages of one eighteen-year-old pit-boy. As for the other lads, there was a law that said they were too young to work. Mrs. Rafferty thought there should be someone to put a little sense into the heads of them that made the laws, for if they wanted to forbid children to work in coal-mines, they should surely provide some other way to feed the children. Hal listened, agreeing sympathetically, and meantime watching her, and learning more from her actions than from her words. She had been obedient to the teachings of her religion, to be fruitful and multiply. She had fed three grown sons into the maw of industry, and had still eight children and a man to care for. Hal wondered if she had ever rested a single minute of daylight in all her fifty-four years. Certainly not while he had been in her house. Even now, while praising the Rafferty God, and blaming the capitalist lawmakers, she was getting a supper, moving swiftly, silently, like a machine. She was lean as an old horse that has toiled across a desert. The skin over her cheekbones was tight as stretched rubber, and cords stood out in her wrists like piano wires. And now she was cringing before the specter of destitution. He asked what she would do about it, and saw the shadow of terror cross her face again. There was one recourse from starvation, it seemed, to have her children taken from her and put in some institution. At the mention of this, one of the special nightmares of the poor, the old woman began to sob and cry again that the doctor was wrong. He would see, and Hal would see. Old Rafferty would be back at his job in a week or two. End of section one. Section two. Hal went out on the street again. It was the hour which would have been sunset in a level region. The tops of the mountains were touched with a purple light, and the air was fresh and chill with early fall. Down the darkening streets he saw a gathering of men. There was shouting and people running towards the place. So he hurried up, with the thought in his mind, What's the matter now? There were perhaps a hundred men crying out, their voices mingling like the sound of waves on the sea. He could make out words. Go on! Go on! We've had enough of it! Hurrah! What's happened? he asked, of someone on the outskirts and the man, recognizing him, raised a cry which ran through the throng. "'Joe Smith! He's the boy for us! Come in here, Joe! Give us a speech!' 
But even while Hal was asking questions, trying to get the situation clear, other shouts had drowned out his name. "'We've had enough of them walking over us!' And somebody cried more loudly, "'Tell us about it! Tell it again! Go on!' A man was standing upon the steps of a building at one side. Hal stared in amazement. It was Tim Rafferty. Of all people in the world, Tim, the light-hearted and simple, Tim of the laughing face and the merry Irish blue eyes. Now his sandy hair was tousled, and his features distorted with rage. "'Him near dead!' he yelled. "'Him with his voice gone, and couldn't move his hand. Eleven years he slaved for them, and near killed in an accident that's their own fault. Every man in this crowd knows it's their own fault, by God!' "'Sure thing! You're right!' cried a chorus of voices. "'Tell it all!' "'They give him twenty-five dollars and his hospital expenses. And what'll his hospital expenses be? They'll have him out on the street again before he's able to stand. You know that. They done it to Pete Cullen.' "'You bet they did!' "'Them damned lawyers in there, getting em to sign papers when they don't know what they're doing." and me that might help him can't get near. By Christ, I say it's too much. Are we slaves, or are we dogs, that we have to stand such things? We'll stand no more of it, shouted one. We'll go in there and see to it ourselves. Come on, shouted another. To hell with their gunmen. Hal pushed his way into the crowd. Tim, he cried, how do you know this? There's a fellow in there seen it. Who? I can't tell you. They'd fire him. But it's somebody you know as well as me. He come and told me. They're beating me old father out of damages. They do it all the time, shouted Warhope, an English miner at Hal's side. That's why they won't let us in there. They done the same thing to my father, put in another voice. Hal recognized Andy, the Greek boy. "'And they want to start number two in the morning,' yelled Tim. "'Who'll go down there again? "'And with Alex Stone, him that damns the men and saves the mules.' "'We'll not go back in them mines till they're safe,' shouted Warhope. "'Let them sprinkle them, or I'm done with the whole business.' "'And let them give us our weights,' cried another. "'We'll have a check weighman, and we'll get what we earn.' So again came the cry. "'Joe Smith, give us a speech, Joe. Soak it to him. You're the boy!' Hal stood helpless, dismayed. He had counted his fight won, and here was another beginning. The men were looking to him, calling upon him as the boldest of the rebels. Only a few of them knew about the sudden change in his fortunes. Even while he hesitated, the line of battle had swept past him. The Englishman, Warhope, sprang upon the steps and began to address the throng. He was one of the bowed and stunted men, but in this emergency he developed sudden lung power. Hal listened in astonishment. This silent and dull-looking fellow was the last he would have picked for a fighter. Tom Olson had sounded him out, and reported that he would hear nothing, so they had dismissed him from mind 
and here he was, shouting terrible defiance. "'They're a set of robbers and murderers. They rob us everywhere we turn. For my part, I've had enough of it. Have you?' There was a roar from everyone within reach of his voice. They had all had enough. "'All right, then, we'll fight them!' "'Hurrah! Hurrah! We'll have our rights!' Jeff Cotton came up on the run, with Bud Adams and two or three of the gunmen at his heels. The crowd turned upon them, the men on the outskirts clenching their fists, showing their teeth like angry dogs. Cotton's face was red with rage, but he saw that he had a serious matter in hand. He turned and went for more help, and the mob roared with delight. Already they had begun their fight. Already they had won their first victory. End of section two.